Hi, I'm Catherine Boucher. Welcome to While You Were Folding. I created this podcast to continue the conversations about the things that matter in domestic life. I'm a Catholic homeschooling mother of six. My husband, Philip, is a pediatrician, and we've been married for 14 years. I've learned a lot, usually in messy or painful ways, and I have so much more to learn. I'm excited to share this episode with you, and I hope you'll add your voice to the next one. I pray before I record every episode that God will use this podcast to inspire each of us to holiness in our vocations as wives, mothers, and his beloved daughters, and that you will go on to share what you heard while you were folding. Let's jump in. Hello, hello. Welcome back to While You Were Folding. If you are new around here, hi, I am so glad that you're here and listening to this podcast episode. I am thrilled to be back to doing these shows. I love it so much, and I love the community that we're building around here. Um, But if you are new around here, this is going to be a rather, shall we say, intimate episode. So I came prepared. I've got my cup of coffee. I got my water bottle to keep me hydrated. Uh, We have a lot of ground to cover today. I'm calling this episode, Moms, You Might Need Physical Therapy. So first things first, I'll let you be the judge of what other household listeners you think are appropriate for this episode. But as a fair warning, I will be making references to female anatomy, childbirth, and the natural consequences of birthing babies. So you can go ahead and let that information make that decision for you. And I'm going to give you a little bit of extra time to excuse little ears or some immature male ears away because you've been warned. And I'm going to go ahead and start talking about all of those things, female anatomy, childbirth, the natural consequences that go along with those things in three, two, one, and we're going. (laughs) Okay. So moms, let's get real. You might need physical therapy. And now that I've given the fair warning that I'll be talking about female anatomy and childbirthing injuries and recovery, I'm also going to give a fair warning that I am not a physician. This it, this episode is not me giving you medical advice or telling you specifically what you need to do for your unique circumstances. So please be smart, check with your doctor, find out if physical therapy is right for you before you proceed with trying anything or doing any of the things that I mention on your own. So Before we jump into where I am today, I thought it would be really helpful if I gave some background on my story, and I'm going to resist the temptation to jump through and not share all of the details because I think when we do that, we're doing ourselves a disservice because I'm guessing that there are some of you, perhaps many of you, that have never discussed these things that I'm going to talk about today with your mom, with a sister, 
with a friend and I want to start the conversation so that we can get rid of the stigma or the fear or the embarrassment around this topic. So I want to give you a little bit of background, a lot of background on my experiences with all of these things, with the physical side of having babies. So I'm 37. Philip and I have been married for 14 years. We have six kids on earth and one baby in heaven. Back in 2012, I had a miscarriage at 11 weeks. And that's another story for another podcast that perhaps I'll talk about on a future episode. That's something else that I'm really passionate about, about talking about miscarriage. And in the 10 years since we had our miscarriage, we have seen a really big cultural shift. Um, I think social media has had a lot to do with that, with uh, people actually sharing about their experiences more. But like I said, I would like to talk about that in a future episode. The focus of this episode is the impact that all of those beautiful babies have had on my body. So here's where we get into the nitty gritty. I have had five vaginal deliveries and one scheduled C-section. I have had various degrees of success with healing and recovery after all of those births. And I wanted to share about my experience so that hopefully if you've never had these conversations before, you can start to make some distinctions about what sorts of things are typical and what sorts of things are not. And the things that you should not accept as your new normal and things that you can seek out help for and what kinds of help is available. So for myself personally, we have some bad news, good news, bad news. (laughs) So the bad news is when I get pregnant, I have severe nausea and vomiting. I have been borderline had to be hospitalized with two of my pregnancies. And if I fought for getting some more help, I probably would have been hospitalized. I was severely dehydrated, um, feeling very ill. I wasn't getting enough fluids. So this severe chronic vomiting was very, not only really difficult physically, but it was really difficult emotionally. I don't know if you've heard about it's the scientific name for the diagnosis is hyperemesis gravidarum, which basically means lots of vomiting, which means you get super dehydrated, very difficult to go about your day to day. So my most difficult pregnancies have been, it seems with the girls, um, but I am sick early on within a week or two of getting a positive pregnancy test right up until delivery. I'll be vomiting. The worst of the nausea and vomiting is up until I'm about week 24, week 25, and then it improves, but it never resolves the way it does in most people's pregnancies. Um, But the amazing, wonderful good news is that God blessed me with uber fertility. So I've gotten to have all of these amazing babies and I tend to grow really big, healthy babies and they love to stay put as long as possible. So that's the amazing news. The flip side of that, (laughs) the bad news 
is that they have to come out and they're really big. (laughs) So that's a big part of why we're talking about what we're talking about today. Their size makes for a really difficult exit. And I'm 5'3", so there's not a lot of room in there for them to go. Um, So let's go back to the beginning when we had our oldest, Jane. She's 12 years old now. I was in labor for two full days. I pushed for three hours. And all of that pushing and all of those contractions were really hard on Jane as well. She had several D cells, which means her heart rate was slowing down. Um, And then both she and I developed fevers during labor. And I was up on all fours with an epidural (laughs) trying to get her to descend into the birth canal. My doctor, this is my first delivery. My doctor was out of town, of course, and his, one of his partners, uh, was helping us out and he did not have the most amazing bedside manner. And our nurse that I had for the actual delivery part was not my favorite. (laughs) And I was at this point still not good at being my own advocate. I will say now that I've delivered six babies, I am such a better advocate for myself in the delivery room with, in terms of what would make me more comfortable, what would help my body, what I'm needing from Philip, what I need from the doctor. So if you are needing to work on conversation skills with your spouse, as you probably are with a first baby, and you're learning how to be comfortable in your own skin, it just compounds how difficult the delivery experience is. So I had all those things going on. And then The doctor really wanted to do a C-section because Jane was not progressing quickly enough, but eventually we got her where she needed to be, but the doctor did end up needing to use forceps. I had an episiotomy, but I still had third degree tears. So um, a quick little anatomy lesson. So you have the vaginal opening and then you have the rectum the exit for your stool. Um, When you have a third degree tear, you have tissue that tears from your vaginal. So you have those of you on video, your vaginal opening, and then your rectum below. And then the tissue connecting the two, that area is called your perineum. And when Jane was born, the tissue tore almost completely through to the opening, the sphincter muscle there. Um, So absolutely awful, really difficult recovery. And if I'm honest, things have never been the same, have not healed well. Jane was eight pounds and seven and a half ounces. So really good size first baby. I was thrilled to have this beautiful, healthy baby with no problems. She had this really... (laughs) Uh, severe cone head from the difficult delivery that she had, but it resolved really quickly. But I was not able to sit upright comfortably for about six months after she was born. And at this time, I was still teaching full-time as a high school Spanish teacher. Um, those of you who are teachers or 
in those kinds of jobs, like nurses, <laughs> doctors, you are on your feet all day long. And so my episiotomy and tear pain was excruciating. And then to sit down was awful. And then passing stool was excruciating. Anytime I had to poop was awful. And so that led to more constipation because I was so afraid to use the bathroom. And I went back to work when I was eight weeks postpartum and teachers do not get enough bathroom time, let alone private bathroom time. If you have the luxury of having a great faculty restroom, it's probably on the other side of the building. And at this point, I was struggling with incontinence. Incontinence, we have, we're going to have a lot of new vocabulary today. <laughs> um, incontinence just means peeing your pants. So sometimes it would be just a little trickle, but other times I would have, you develop with the chronic vomiting during pregnancy that weekend, it weakened my pelvic floor. So all of those muscles that hold things up are called your pelvic floor. And because of the weight of your baby, the weakening from all of the vomiting, and then all of the pushing that happened with a vaginal delivery, it's just the perfect storm that created these really weak muscles that used to do things like keep your urine in when you need to hold it. Um, so as a new mom who's teaching back to work, it was really, really difficult. And then while we're talking about the peeing part of it, laughing or sneezing, they weren't only painful because of my sutures and injuries from delivery, but it was potentially embarrassing because it made me often pee my pants. So I had to wear a pad everywhere, running, jumping, anything high impact was absolutely out of the question. Um, and then to add to the physical struggles, I really struggled with nursing. I have always had low supply. This is probably another episode of the podcast, breastfeeding, um, because I think there's so much pressure and so much unnecessary shame on that podcast and being <laughs> on that topic, not the podcast. There is so much unnecessary shame and pressure surrounding breastfeeding. And I'm the wife of a pediatrician, Okay. So maybe I'll talk about that another time. Um, but after Jane, I was able to nurse her for six weeks, but then we were triple feeding and it just got to be too much. Philip was in medical school at this point and I probably had some postpartum depression, um, but I didn't have, I had such few friends who were having babies, let alone people who were married at this point. I was 25 when I had Jane. We were 23 when we got married. And no one was talking about the physical stuff, at least no one that I knew. No one was telling me about all these things that I needed to expect. I mean, my big sister, she had told me about the the uh, hospital mesh underwear but I didn't really know all beyond that, all of the gory details of what to expect. Um, and I didn't have a realistic idea of what my recovery would potentially look like. So I had this really, really difficult, really frustrating, really hard time because prior to this, prior to feeling like, oh my goodness, I'm peeing my pants. Sometimes I'm struggling with even holding stool, not being able to hold on to my poop. Um, 
feeling like I have just lost control of my body. My body has failed me. My body is betraying me. I have never really struggled with body image issues. God has blessed me with the grace to just not have that be on my radar. Blessed be God. Um, because I know that that's a real issue for a lot of women. But this was probably the first time that I came face to face with my body's real limitations physically. And I realized after having a baby, my, my body is not mine anymore. It really, it gave a lot of beauty to the Eucharistic prayer and meditating on in the mass, the words, when we hear Jesus say, this is my body given up for you and meditating on that as a mother. But there's a lot of hardness to that too, because it's not, um, it's not always voluntary. It's not always feeling like a free choice. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Maybe I need to spend some more time thinking on that. But this was really the first time that I came, I really had to address that my body couldn't do everything I wanted it to do. And that was really difficult for me. But even, even as difficult as that pregnancy and the delivery and the recovery were, Jane was such an amazing baby. And when she turned six months, Philip and I said, let's do this again. And like I said, God blessed us with uber fertility. And then sure enough, we got pregnant and Walt was 15 months younger than Jane. And he weighed eight pounds, 13 ounces. His delivery was dramatic and long and difficult. And the pregnancy was just like the others, just like Jane. Harry was next. A couple years later, we had the miscarriage between Walt and Harry. Harry was eight pounds, seven ounces. Then Dorothy was a few years after him at nine pounds, four ounces. She's my biggest baby. Um, those three babies, numbers two, three, and four, they had to be induced because my doctors were concerned about size in the birth canal. And sure enough, Dorothy was um, so large that she actually got stuck and had what's called shoulder dystocia, which means that her shoulders got stuck in the birth canal and Praise you, Jesus. My doctor is incredible. And she was able to maneuver Dorothy to get her out without somehow damaging her clavicle, breaking her clavicle, or hurting her nerves in her arm. Um, so that was Dorothy, number four. And then Philip and I have always felt a call to adopt. And those of you who have been listening to the show for a long time might remember that after Dorothy, she was born in 2016. We applied to adopt internationally and things in the international adoption world have become more and more difficult for families with uh, several children. So at this point we have four kids and we were hoping to adopt from China. And then a couple of different things happened with the program and we had to um, no longer adopt from China. And then we ended up getting our home study completed and had just about all the paperwork done. And then 
the program closed and then we had to switch to South Korea. We were going to adopt from South Korea, had everything done. And we were about to send off our dossier, our formal application, when we found out that we had Gloria coming on the way. And so Gloria was born in 2019, March of 2019, and she was also induced at 39 weeks, and she weighed 8 pounds, 12 ounces. And I'm so thankful that we did induce her early because we also had shoulder dystocia with her. She got stuck in the birthing canal. And it could have been really serious if she had been much larger. So um, each of those pregnancies were different for different reasons, but the common denominators, I continued to have the severe nausea and vomiting with every pregnancy. And that chronic vomiting, just think about the human anatomy and what happens. Every time you're vomiting, you are putting so much pressure on your pelvic floor. So that vomiting really weakened my pelvic floor. And that first absolutely devastating, horrible, physically delivery with Jane, and then all of those subsequent big baby deliveries and having them so close together really did a number on my body. So let's talk about the kinds of injuries that a woman can expect to have when you have multiple babies or even just one baby and have a difficult delivery. So Again, at this point, I've had, I had had five vaginal deliveries and the kinds of injuries that I had, those of you that might have access to these videos that I might upload. So, and I know I'm not positive on the pronunciation of this first one, but when you have abdominal separation, those babies can just completely push your tummy muscles apart. And then you have this separation between your abdominals and it's called, I believe, diastasis recti is how I've always heard it pronounced. But basically you have that separation. So if you're laying flat and you try to do a sit up, you try to lift your head up, you're going to have some separation between the muscles and you'll start to see your tummy will kind of cone up between your abdominals, and you'll be able to stick some fingers in between those abdominal muscles. So you develop kind of this bulge. Your abdominal muscles are amazing. They work kind of like a corset to hold everything in and to support you so that you can have a good posture. And then when those abdominal muscles get weakened, it creates that bulge. And then when you are used to slouching and you have the constant bending over because you're nursing or bottle feeding a baby that contributes as well. makes me want to sit up a little bit more just talking about it. Um, and then from all of the pushing that I had with Jane for three hours, that created some pretty serious hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids are basically just blood vessels that have gotten really swollen right around your rectum. And having the fear to use the restroom compounds the issue because then that creates constipation. And when you have severe constipation during pregnancy, you have the weight of baby on you, and then you're pushing during delivery. Again, it's like a perfect storm for hemorrhoids to be a chronic issue. And then here's, here's probably the most graphic part of all. Okay. So again, little ears, male listeners. So you have all of this pressure and pushing and you have a weakened pelvic floor. 
Okay. So oftentimes one of the major issues, we laugh about people peeing their pants when they go on a trampling or, or whatever, but you will have what's called prolapse. So if you have the vaginal opening right here, you have the rectum right behind, and then above the vaginal opening, you have the uterus. With all that pressure, you're going to start to see in some women, not all, and in some women, you might have all of the above. Um, the uterus will start to descend into the vaginal opening and even come out. So that's called uterine prolapse. In some women, you'll start to see the bladder start to descend into the vaginal opening, and that's called cystocele. And some women have a very weakened wall between the rectum, again, that's where your poop comes out, and your vaginal opening. And it's kind of like if you have a balloon that has a weakened wall, if you've ever seen a balloon that got blown up and then it gets deflated, there's little pockets that look like little blisters on the side of the balloon. And that weakened wall between the vaginal opening and the rectum can cause the bulge from the rectum. Every time you pass stool, that puts that puts pressure on the rectum wall. And that rectum starts to descend into the vaginal opening and can come out the vaginal opening. And that's called rectocele. So you could have the uterus come through the vaginal opening. You could have the bladder come through the vaginal opening, and that's called cystocele. And you can have rectocele when the rectum starts to descend into the vaginal opening. So I've had various degrees of all three, and more often than not, postpartum, I battle all three of them. So you can imagine what that would feel like. Lots of pain, lots of discomfort, um, and even some embarrassment. You talk about inability to just do life the way you want to. It makes you, when you have young kids, you're not able to be as physically active with them as you want to be in terms of getting down on the floor, all of the bending over, picking them up. It's really difficult when you have these physical things going on because you feel like you don't have control over your bodily functions. And it makes being a young active mom very difficult and it makes your exercise life very difficult. And unfortunately, I didn't know that physical therapy was even an option until we moved to Lincoln. And that was back in 2014. And I, at that point, had already given birth to three babies. And looking back, I am just so surprised and disappointed that no one had ever mentioned to me that I should pursue physical therapy for pelvic floor dysfunction. And this is not okay. <laughs> every OBGYN, every primary care physician that treats a woman that has given birth should be telling moms about antepartum, postpartum, and in-between physical therapy. There is so much that we can do to take care of our bodies, both before birth and after birth, but also the in-between to try and keep ourselves strong. And I started seeing a physical therapist for pelvic floor dysfunction after Dorothy. So that's after our fourth baby. And at that point, I had abdominal separation. I was encouraged to do Kegel exercises. So Kegels um, 
are basically where you're trying to strengthen the muscles that pull up on your vagina, I guess is how I would describe it. And also to do some different breathing exercises. I would say that I had minimal success with that series of physical therapy, especially I thought I had had quite a bit of success, but compared to my latest experience, I would say it was very minimal. And then at that point, because things had gotten a little bit better and I was hoping to get stronger and do some more, um, some more physical activity, I decided I wanted to try running. And so I started the couch to 5k app, which I absolutely love. But unfortunately, because I was having so many of these major symptoms, I was doing a lot more harm than good. So at this point, I had uterine prolapse, I had cystocele and rectocele. And when I ran, I had to use the bathroom right before I got on the treadmill. And even then, with an overnight pad, I was soaking through and had to change it at least twice if I was going to have a run for half an hour. And it was awful because it just felt like I wasn't able to exercise the way that I wanted to. And running destroyed any positives that I was having, any gains that I had made with physical therapy because of how high impact it was with my prolapse. You can just imagine the visual of someone running when you have things falling out because of all of the trauma that's happened to your body with all the vomiting and birthing injuries. So it really compounded issues instead of helping them. Um, but I had just put up with it as my new normal. And I just went with it because I said, this is just what has to happen. I'm a young mom. I've had several babies and this is just what happens. And looking back, I just, I wish I hadn't really pushed the running and had done more to take care of myself. So then after we had baby number four, baby number five, I wanted to be a little bit more aggressive about exploring my options with what I could do to heal. And I talked with my OBGYN about corrective surgery and what the recovery time would look like and what my options were. And basically, if I were to pursue surgery, I would have to see a colorectal surgeon. So a doctor that does repairs of the GI system and she did not, my doc did not feel comfortable doing that. And she wanted me to see someone in Omaha for that. So I went and I got a consult just to have her opinion. And basically she was wonderful. And I think she would do a fantastic job, but she was very no nonsense and straightforward and wanted me to know that she would not be willing to take me on as a patient until I definitively knew that we were quote unquote done having children. So we're Catholic, we do NFP, and a lot of doctors are not super excited about you saying that that's your plan. Maybe some of you have been in the hospital right after having a baby, and you're asked that question about what your plan is for birth control. And when you say, we do NFP, you get a lot of suggestions about other birth control options because you get looked at like this is not effective. And, and I do realize the irony that this is it, me sharing this anecdote after our baby number five, who was our one surprise <laughs> baby. But I will say she was a day five baby. 
And those of you in the NFP world know what I'm talking about. And that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) God really wanted her to be a part of our lives. And we're so glad that she is. Life would not be the same without Gloria. Um, So I explored corrective surgery. And she basically said, I am not going to do this until you're done having babies. So I kind of walked away from that appointment thinking, okay, well, uh, I have a lot of childbearing years left at this point. This was three years ago. So I would have been 30, 34. Um, so looking at at least until probably age 40 before I could even at the earliest be entering into menopause. Um, and that felt like a really long time to put up with all of these physical issues. Um, and then I talked with my OBGYN about, you know, I'm having so much pain and discomfort. I'm not able to exercise the way I want to. What other options do I have? So at this point, I learned about what's called a pessary, P-E-S-S-A-R-Y, pessary. Um, and a pessary, they come in all different shapes and sizes and even styles. But a pessary basically is every one that I have ever had is made from silicone and they're bendable, but they're shaped round and they are all different shapes and sizes. So some are really small and some are much larger and they have a curved circle around the outside and then they have some material in between. And the idea is you fold it into the shape of a taco and insert it into the vaginal opening. And then it springs out and it's supposed to do the job of supporting those tissues that are weakened and have descended into the vaginal opening so that you can do those higher impact activities or even just walking. Some people wear pessaries for several weeks at a time, sometimes a few months at a time. Older women often will wear pessaries and my OBGYN and her nurse have shared with me that the older patients have a lot of difficulty inserting the pessaries and removing them themselves. And so they actually have appointments with the doctor to do the insertion and removal for them. Um, Obviously they make things like sexual intercourse difficult. Most younger women just insert and remove the pessary for higher impact activities, but otherwise aren't wearing them. But some women, for example, maybe you're a surgeon and you have to be on your on your feet for several hours on end may use a pessary for those types of activities. Um, so I went ahead and got a pessary. It was some trial and error to find the right style and size that worked for me. And I was running but I had some worsening symptoms, um, and the pessary had really helped with the prolapse issues that I was having. So that was good. I will say it was quite uncomfortable, but it helped so much with the incontinence, with the peeing issues that I had had, that I just kept going with it. And then a few years later, we decided in the fall of 2020 that we hoped to grow our family again. And we, blessed be God, got pregnant with baby Helen. And that started a roller coaster pregnancy that was unlike the others. It had been pretty similar to the others in a lot of ways in the sense that I got sick, like I always had. Um, But this time around, I had been monitored pretty closely because I had 
received a diagnosis after Gloria was born. After baby number five was born, I was diagnosed with Sjogren's syndrome. Um, and Sjogren's can cause heart block in babies that have a mom that has Sjogren's syndrome. But fortunately, none of that was going on this pregnancy, but I did have to be monitored very closely. And at my 20-week ultrasound, we found out that I had a low-lying placenta. So the placenta gives the baby all of their food and nutrients while they're in the uterus. And then, (coughs) excuse me, the umbilical cord was not covered in the protective Wharton's jelly, and the umbilical cord was draped across my cervical opening, my internal cervical opening. So if I were to go into labor on my own or have my water break, the pressure of the baby's head on that umbilical cord would cause the blood vessel to rupture and the baby could bleed out in a matter of minutes. So this could also lead to me hemorrhaging as well. And unfortunately, vasoprevia is not always diagnosed before labor begins, and it can be fatal to both baby and mother if you don't have a medical team that's right there and able to take care of you. So this was very, very serious, and my doctors were not messing around, and they went back and forth with having with the plan of having me be hospitalized and kept on modified bed rest in the hospital so that I wouldn't go into labor early on my own. So they kept measuring how far away the cord was from the cervical opening, and there would be some weeks where it had moved away from the cervix, and there would be some weeks where it was back and completely covering it. And so we had all this back and forth of what the plan was going to be. And eventually, I started receiving shots to develop baby's um, lungs. So I with the steroid shots, the hope was that baby's lungs would be developed enough so that even if we had to have baby be born preterm, that um, baby would do okay and be able to breathe well without assistance. So I was there for a checkup at 35 weeks, but I was having prodromal labor. Prodromal labor, I have had every single pregnancy. Basically, I contract for days and weeks on end. It starts every evening and it always ramps up and it lasts, the contractions last for over a minute and they're less than five minutes apart. And I think I'm going into labor and they don't end up doing anything except being really painful and uncomfortable. So you get exhausted. So this was going on when I was 35 weeks and my doctors were not excited about this because of the pressure that those contractions were putting on the umbilical cord and what it could do to baby. So I got hospitalized from that appointment and they let me keep cooking her for another two days while I was on the monitor. And then Helen was delivered at 36 weeks and one day. And this was a scheduled C-section because they were not going to take any chances with her going through the birth canal with the umbilical cord being the way it was. And the moment they made the incision that burst my waters, the the cord on the umbilical cord vessel ruptured. And so the doctors made all of the right decisions. They were right there to fix everything. We both lost a lot of blood and it made recovery more difficult. But Helen did beautifully. She had to stay in the NICU for a few hours. Um, and she never needed any oxygen. And she got to be in the room with me after just those few hours in the NICU. And Philip was holding her the whole time. Um, it's still just 
amazing to me that we were able to get our diagnosis as early as we did and that we were monitored so closely and so well. But there there definitely was some sadness that I had to have a C-section after everything else that my body had been through. It definitely was a hard recovery. Um, I already had a really weak core because of all of my other injuries. And now I had the incision and all of the abdominal damage on top of it. And I had gained some extra weight. I had gained some weight prior to becoming pregnant just because of pandemic stress eating, being married to a physician. Um, We were also building a house and preparing for a move. And Philip was starting his own medical practice in the same year. So it was insanity. (laughs) So I just took the long plan with my recovery and how I wanted to take care of myself. So I've been working really hard on doing low impact things. I've been walking on the treadmill every day, about two miles and trying to eat really well, looking at my serving sizes, making sure I'm making my calories really count and work for me. And I've lost about 60 pounds from the day that Helen was born. And she is 16 weeks, 16 weeks, no, (laughs) 16 months. Um, So I feel really proud that I haven't done anything extreme and I'm still not exercising the way I quite want to, but I've been working really, really hard, being really intentional with physical therapy. So now that I've had six babies and I've shared all my (laughs) horror stories about what my birthing experiences were like, I wanted to share the great news at the end of everything that I've shared so far. I found out that my sorority sister opened her own physical therapy clinic in town. And she specializes in pelvic floor physical therapy. So I made an appointment, went in. I hadn't seen her in years since we were in college. And I am so happy that I am going. I So this has been a couple months now. I want to say it's been four months. And I've been doing my exercises and sticking with them. And it's been remarkable, remarkable what a difference it has made. I had my annual exam two months after I started going to physical therapy and my OBGYN at a prior visit, excuse me, when I had my six week checkup after Helen was born, she had told me that I was for sure a surgical candidate, but she was so impressed with the progress that I had made with physical therapy that she said that if I wanted to, I could hold off on corrective surgery for another five to 10 years if I wanted to. And then at that appointment, sorry, another follow-up appointment with my OBGYN, I got fitted for a new pessary. But unfortunately, I had to get such a large pessary to support things enough because of how my prolapse was. And just with the weight of running that it had to be significant in size, um, that unfortunately I tried to do day one of couch to 5k and it was fine when I was running, but afterward I noticed, Oh man, I've got some serious injury going on here. So I got a prescription for a, an, an estrogen cream. And this term is absolutely rough. (laughs) So my doctor said the estrogen cream is for quote unquote, vaginal erosion. Can you think of a more horrible term? (laughs) 
So, but for real, this stuff, I'm, I know I'm not super excited about hormone creams and all that, but this one has very minimal absorption into the bloodstream and it's doing so much repair work to those tissues that I think it's worth it. Um, and it's really helpful. And I was about to try running again about a month ago, but I had to have a preventative care colonoscopy. So here's me getting on my soapbox. I have family history of polyps and I had my first baseline colonoscopy five years ago. So I was due to have my second one. And I'm thrilled that I did it because they did find a polyp, but blessed be God, it was benign. Um, but you have to get this stuff done and get over any embarrassment or whatever about all of this. It is so worth it because it could have just as easily been a cancerous polyp and they would have caught it and that would have been the end of it because they are finding so many more young people and who knows, I'm sure they're doing all the studies on why that is, but the baseline age keeps coming down for when people should get their first colonoscopy. So find out your family history, look into it. But the reason I brought that up in the context of this conversation is because that colonoscopy, if you know what a colonoscopy is to get it done, you have to do a prep, which means to be prepped for the colonoscopy, the exploratory surgery, where they're looking through your entire digestive tract, you have to have a clear colon, which means you have to clean it out, which means really aggressive basically laxative treatments. And so I spent a significant amount of time expelling stool. And so that did a number on my body and it brought me back to square one, unfortunately, with where I was postpartum with all my prolapse issues. Um, that and the prep made me vomit excessively too. So <laughs> it brought back my three system prolapse with a vengeance and I got to go to physical therapy yesterday. And that was the first time that I had been back since my colonoscopy. And unfortunately, my physical therapist agreed with me that I need to just stick with running, not running. <laughs> Can you tell I have running on the brain? Because I really want to run. I loved the way it felt that one time that I got to run to get my heart rate going and feel like, wow, in half an hour, I'm really able to get in a real, quote unquote, real workout but it's not worth it because of the damage that it did. So at this point, I'm going to need to stick with walking for probably another month. Um, she gave me some great recommendations on little things I can do to help take the pressure off, increasing the incline on my treadmill when I'm walking forward. Um, but my prolapse is just too severe for me to be running right now. But I wanted to say, if you are in a similar situation, there might be other things that you could be doing. So I, with this Sjogren's syndrome, have experienced a lot of dryness. Sjogren's causes joint pain, GI stuff, blah, 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 fatigue, all these other things. It basically affects all the major systems of your body. But one of the biggest things as a woman in the way that it affects me is moisture. It makes all of this prolapse issue compounded because I don't have any moisture in my lady area. So yeah, that vaginal moisture has to be replenished by having a special cream. 
And that has made such a difference in my day-to-day comfort. So if you are having dryness, a lot of women just have dryness because of childbirth and what's going on cyclically. You might have different times of the month when you're drier than other times of the month. So talk with your doctor about finding some sort of a special cream or gel, something that is good for your body and your personal situation. I also saw a gastroenterologist when I was about six months postpartum and came up with a plan with her. And it's made such a difference. You don't realize how your bathroom habits have an impact on all of these kinds of injuries. So I have this regimen. And now that I'm talking about all these things, I'm going to share them because as specific as, um, And maybe it's embarrassing for some of the people who know me to hear all this stuff, but I don't care (laughs) because I'm willing for, I'm willing to, I don't know. I'm not embarrassed about it because I just, I want people to know you have options. So the things that are working for me, again, this is not me saying you should do all these things, talk to your doctor, but the gastroenterologist recommended that I scaled back on the amount of Miralax that I was having because that chronic constipation was really difficult on my prolapse. And she said, try to titrate it. Try to find out the dosage that's right for you. So I landed on one cap in my morning coffee. And then I'm having Citricel, which is a fiber supplement. Metamucil is another one. It's an orange powder that you add to water and it basically becomes (laughs) slime. (laughs) Uh, it's not my favorite, but it's amazing what a difference it has made in my ability to go to the bathroom and move on with my day and feel confident that I'm not going to have issues to feel confident that I'm not going to have diarrhea or gas or pain or abdominal distension from all of it. I am drinking lots of water. I keep my water bottle with me at all times because again, part of the Sjogren's syndrome is that it limits the amount of saliva that I have. So if you're listening to this podcast, as I know you are, because you're hearing my voice, (laughs) you might notice I have to take a pause to swallow every now and then because it's really difficult with my limited saliva production. And speaking of which, I'm going to take a drink of coffee. Okay. The next thing you're going to laugh, but again, I don't care (laughs) because it has made such a difference for me. Um, I want you to look up the squatty potty. I'm going to highlight this in my notes right now so that I remember to share a link to it in the show notes. The squatty potty is basically a little stool and you put your feet on it when you use the restroom And you do that to put your body in the right position so that you can poop, so that you can eliminate stool in the way God intended for us to. So you think about it, You, when you squat, you're creating a straight line for the stool to be able to exit through your body. So the squatty potty is wonderful. And that's been a game changer as well. And if you are traveling or find yourself away from home, Find something that you can put your feet on to get yourself into that position that the squatty potty can put you in. And just basic good bathroom habits have made a huge difference. If I have to go to the restroom, I just go right away. I don't make myself hold it anymore. I know as a mom that that's not always an option, but (laughs) I feel like this is a commandment of adulthood that 
if you have an opportunity to go use the restroom, you just do it, (laughs) whether you necessarily feel like you need to or not. And now the other thing that I learned through physical therapy and talking with the gastroenterologist and my first physical therapist that I went to is something that's called splinting. Now you might get a little squeamish listening to this, but it's really important. And there is no reason why anyone should have shame or embarrassment about it. So remember back to when I first talked about how women that have prolapse sometimes have the rectum descending into the vaginal opening, and that's called rectocele. So when that happens, you have that weakened wall that's descending into the vaginal opening. So you can imagine when someone is trying to poop, when you're trying to pass stool, you have that bulge descending into the vaginal opening. It makes it much more difficult to advance the stool so that it actually goes where it's supposed to go because it's trying to descend from that weakened wall. Picture that balloon with that blistered looking side when you have that happening, you need to somehow give yourself support. So what you can do before you go use the restroom is wash your hands really well and you use your fingers, however many you're able to, or however many you need to support that weakened wall so that the stool has the support that it needs to be able to evacuate successfully. And it allows you to complete a bowel movement without pain or discomfort. And it allows your body to try and heal itself without doing further damage. So splinting, talk with your doctor about that and figure out strategies so that having a bowel movement can be less uncomfortable and you can get the support that you need. Okay. Now the last thing that I've been doing, I have a lot of specific exercises, so this isn't everything, but This just cracked me up because it was probably the most difficult, mind-changing thing. Breathing. I had to spend forever learning how to breathe. It turns out breathing, when you are trying to hold things in, I was doing it all wrong. I was trying to suck in my tummy because I have this weakened pelvic floor and I have the separated abdominal muscles. So I'm trying to compensate for it and it causes me to really tighten up my pelvic floor. But the way my physical therapist described it to me, I need to do what's called diaphragmatic breathing. And all that that means is you think of your tummy, your diaphragm, where you're breathing as this tank that basically sits on a trampoline and the trampoline is your pelvic floor. And we need to relax our muscles of our pelvic floor enough so that when we breathe in, we have movement and a release. And so what I was doing before when I would breathe in, my my physical therapist asked me to breathe and I... I was so embarrassed because I was doing it wrong. And I said, what do you mean? I don't know how to breathe. (laughs) So when you do diaphragmatic breathing, and I'm going to butcher the explanation, I asked my physical therapist if she'd be willing to come on the podcast and she said yes. So maybe sometime I can have her on. I'm not sharing her name today because I want to really firm up that she's comfortable with this. Um, But basically when you breathe in, It's belly breathing. Some of us have probably talked about this with our kids. When you breathe in, 
you shouldn't feel your chest rising. And that's what I was doing. You're not doing that. When you breathe in, you should feel your tummy going out. And us women, the way my physical therapist described it, we don't want to make our tummies go out because it makes us not feel attractive. It makes us vain. It makes us whatever. But get over it because it means you're not using your pelvic floor and your muscles correctly. So what you need to do, you breathe in and your tummy goes out. And then when you exhale, your tummy goes in. And then you think of like when you're zipping up your pants, you're tightening those things up and bringing things in those Kegel exercises that so many of us have heard about. That's when you're engaging those pelvic floor muscles and bringing it, bringing it in. So that image of a zipper bringing things up is really helpful. So the breathing thing that cracked me up. Um, and I, I talk with my physical therapist about this all the time. I will probably have to have corrective surgery at some point down the road, but the doctors refuse to do the surgery until I am absolutely done having babies. So in the meantime, I am babying my body and I'm doing what I can to get strong and healthy, but I'm doing it in a very slow, methodical way. And Having to do surgery down the road in no way means that physical therapy right now is a waste of time because I am seeing huge gains and improvement in all of the things that I'm doing. And I know exactly what I need to do right now to get to back to where I was before the colonoscopy. And I had been in a great place and I had gotten clearance from my physical therapist and my OBGYN to do some running. And had I not had that colonoscopy prep, I think I still would be running right now um, because I think I have a pessary that would fit properly and not cause vaginal erosion. (laughs) Oh, that's awful. (laughs) But Today, I really wanted to go into all these details because if you are experiencing any of these symptoms, I want you to know you are so far from being the only one and what you're experiencing does not have to be your new normal. And if you are experiencing any of these issues, discuss them with your primary care provider and your OBGYN and search for a pelvic floor physical therapist in your area so that you can start rebuilding your muscles of your pelvic floor and feel comfortable and confident in your body because living with all of these things is not the way it's supposed to be. (laughs) There is so much we can do. So what will it be like when you go to your first physical therapy appointment for pelvic floor dysfunction? Chances are you'll probably have some paperwork and it'll look like learning about your dietary habits, your bathroom habits, places where you're experiencing pain or discomfort, if you have any prolapses, the number of pregnancies you've had, what deliveries, number of deliveries you've had, what types of deliveries you've had, and then a physical exam where you're looking at the kinds of scar tissue that you have, as well as what kind of pelvic floor tightness or injuries you might have. You'll probably have a check for abdominal separation. You'll have a check on your posture to see how your spine is aligned, how you hold your body, 
And then you'll have a discussion about your goals, what kinds of activities you are limited in and what kinds of activities you want to be able to do and how these kinds of injuries are affecting your day-to-day life. You'll talk about pelvic floor anatomy and how everything works together. And you'll probably talk about diaphragmatic breathing, learning how to breathe correctly, and talking through a plan for your future sessions and the exercises to work on. And I know that I have gone through so much today and it's a lot of information to throw at you, but I have become so passionate about this and I want to help people who are uncomfortable and are in a lot of pain because if I had known about this early on, I don't know what kind of physical shape I'd be in in terms of these injuries. And if there's one person out there who's battling this pain and discomfort and they feel embarrassed about it, I want you to know you're not alone and there is so much that you can do and you've got options. And frankly, as a Catholic woman, I know a whole lot of women who have had a whole lot of babies and have these kind of injuries and aren't doing anything about it. And if we keep pretending that women's bodies don't go through a lot of trauma, physical trauma, then that's not a culture of life. Our bodies are doing so much work for us and they do so many beautiful things. And if we're going to embrace the beauty of God's design and the gift of our fertility and these amazing babies that he gives to us, then let's make sure that we're talking with our husbands and our doctors and our friends about the physical realities of all the things that that entails and that we are working to heal these beautiful, amazing bodies so that they're working at their fullest potential so that we can serve God, serve our families and serve others. There are so many ways that we can help ourselves. And I am finding more and more fantastic online resources for women who are battling pelvic floor dysfunction. There's one fantastic online resource called Get Strong, sorry, Get Mom Strong. She has a great Instagram account where she short shares these really short videos. They're informative and they show you how your body works and what kind of movements make the most sense for us postpartum or if we're pregnant and what kinds of exercises will strengthen our weakened muscles. So I'll link to that in the show notes and I'm sure I'll think of something else. But in the meantime, I just hope that this episode was really helpful. I really want to hear from you because chances are you've had a baby or know someone who has, and you've heard stories about someone peeing her pants because she was walking in a parking lot, pushing a shopping cart and couldn't stop because there was a car backing up and she couldn't cross her legs. Um, let's start having these conversations if you're not already having them with the people who are right for you to have them with in your life. And I know that that's ironic to hear me saying that because I'm just sitting in front of microphone and putting this conversation out for anyone to hear it. But we really need to have these conversations and reach out and get the help that we need so that we can recover. And maybe you have a success story about pelvic floor physical therapy, and you could share it as an encouragement to some of the listeners. Or maybe you have a follow-up question to something that I talked about today, and you wanted to know more about this thing that I talked about, and you had a follow-up to it. So um, like I said, I asked my physical therapist if she'd be interested in coming on the podcast and she said she would. So if enough of you share your interest in this topic and you send in your questions, she would be absolutely fantastic to have on the show. 
Uh, But as always, if you want to get in touch, you can find my contact information in the show notes. And I hope I'll be able to add your voice to a future episode. Until next time, I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. Continue the conversation with the people in your life and share what you heard while you were folding.